0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Hello and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, Exclusion as the American Experience, the Chinese Exclusion Act, a screening of a shortened version of the documentary by award-winning filmmakers Rick Burns and Lee Shin Yu, shown on PBS as part of the series The American Experience and a presentation by community advocate David Lay. I am Virginia Chung, a member of the club's Asia Pacific Affairs member-led forum and your chair for today. We also welcome our listening audience and we invite everyone to visit us online at commonwealthclub.org. This program is in association with the Center for Asian American Media, which is one of the co-producers along with the filmmakers and the New York Historical Society of the documentary. After the screening, the Bay Area's David Lay, community advocate, who has a passion for telling the Chinese-American story rooted in American civil rights history and who provided much of the inspiration for the documentary, will provide his perspective and answer questions. Let me introduce David Lay. He has a few notes on the film before we start here.
2: Yes, how many have heard of Paper Sun? A good part. How many are Paper (laughs) Suns or descendants of Paper Sun? Normally I get one or two. For those that don't know, I have to explain it because near the end of the documentary, there's about five minutes about Paper Sun. is because of the exclusion law, and the Chinese could not come. Uh, Laborers could not come. They thought of all different ways to come. And so Paper Sun is to buy papers claiming you're someone you're not, someone that's eligible to come, and that's a Paper Sun. So enjoy the documentary, and I'll come back and answer questions later. On
3: June 30th, 1885, as the fundraising campaign for the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty finally began to pick up speed, a letter appeared in the pages of the New York Sun, written by a young Chinese immigrant and recent college graduate named Sam Song Bo, who had come to America years earlier as a small boy, and who dreamed of becoming a lawyer.
4: Sir, a paper was presented to me yesterday for subscription among my countrymen toward the pedestal fund of the Statue of Liberty. My countrymen and myself are honored in being thus appealed to as citizens in the cause of liberty. But the word liberty makes me think of the fact that this country is the land of liberty for all men of all nations, except the Chinese. That statue represents liberty holding a torch, which lights the passage of those of all nations who come into this country. But are the Chinese allowed to come? Are the Chinese here... Allowed to enjoy liberty as men of all other nationalities enjoy it. Free from the insults, abuse, assaults, wrongs, and injuries from which men of other nationalities are free. By the law of this nation, a Chinaman cannot become a citizen. Whether this statute against the Chinese or the Statue of Liberty will be the more lasting monument to tell future ages of the liberty and greatness of this country will be known only to future generations. Sam Bo.
3: The solitary arm of the unfinished Statue of Liberty had languished on Madison Square in New York for more than five years. When on May 6, 1882, on the eve of the greatest wave of immigration in American history, President Chester A. Arthur signed into law an extraordinary piece of federal legislation. It was called the Chinese Exclusion Act, and it was unlike any law enacted since the founding of the Republic. Singling out as never before a specific race and nationality for exclusion, it made it illegal for Chinese workers to come to America and for Chinese nationals already here ever to become citizens of the United States. Fueled by deep-seated tensions over race and class and national identity that had been festering since the founding of the Republic, it was the first in a long line of acts targeting the Chinese for exclusion and it would remain in force for more than 60 years. It continues to shape the debate about what it means to be an American to this day.
5: Chinese Americans always have this identification with the founding principle of this country, so beautifully laid out by the founding fathers and so eloquently articulated in the Declaration of Independence and uh, in American Constitution. The Chinese identify with this fundamental principle of liberty, equality, and justice for all. And all men are created equal. Now, how can you say that this is a group of people who are biologically and culturally unfit to live a civilized life, to appreciate and practice American culture, political and religious ideals. That's why I think a lot of Americans had a hard time to learn that the Chinese Exclusion Act really exists for 60 years. They couldn't believe it the government did. That.
6: We have to remember that for most of the 19th century immigration into the United States was basically open. You just showed up. So the Chinese Exclusion Law is one of the first really comprehensively restrictive laws. And it's also the first and only time in the entire history of the United States that a group is singled out by name. Chinese by name, as being undesirable. So this is truly a remarkable moment.
7: If there is a word that defines the Chinese-American experience and Asian-American experience, it's exclusion. And not just because of the 15 laws passed by the United States Congress, specifically against the Chinese, but also subsequent laws In the various states, especially here in California, and in local jurisdictions such as places like San Francisco, Los Angeles, all the major cities enact laws, including laws that actually expelled and purged the Chinese from its population.
0: Starting in California, the Chinese were marked as different. And I see the 1882 bill. ...as a link in a chain of bills and a chain of legislation and race riots and purges that are trying to move the country toward ethnic cleansing. The 1882 bill was not about labor. I think it was about white purity and how do we get rid of people who are different.
8: We focus a lot on the Exclusion Act from the point of view of racism. We can't help but talk about racism in the 19th century. But again, we come back to the fact that we haven't learned our lesson. We talk about 19th century and its racism as if it's in the past. It's all done with. No, it isn't. We have yet to resolve this in our
9: 21st century.
10: I mean history is complex and it's a mixed burden. We can talk about the war against the Chinese leveled by California, but we can also say that California was a laboratory for the larger process of adjustment that began nationally. There's very little in California that's exclusively Californian. Most of what goes on in California is America. Remember uh, Wallace Stegner said about California, it's like the rest of the country, only more so.
2: Many people think of this exclusion law as being very racist, very unfair. But if you look at the world at that time, every country was like that in almost every ethnicity. Try to be a citizen of China or try to be a citizen of Japan is impossible unless you're ethnically Chinese or Japanese. But this is a group of people, Chinese American, the Chinese that were here, who actually fought back and made America better than what it was and helped make America what it is today, the values that we have, including equal protection under the law, rights to education, what it means to be American, what makes you American, to be born here. All these weren't defined. The 1882
8: exclusion law has been forgotten, but once we remember it, It is outrageous. And that's probably why we've forgotten it, because it is so outrageous. Many Americans today cannot believe this happened. We like to think that this is not an American thing to do. How could this country, in its culture, in its politics, in its economics, do what it did against a whole class of people? The exclusion law didn't say, oh, if you happen to be a Chinese citizen, you cannot come here anymore. It said that race of people are banned from this country. So it's a racial exclusion law. So that banning of a whole category of people directly challenges foundational questions of what American freedom means and what American history means, who we the people can constitute.
11: I think it's essential that Americans know about the exclusion of Chinese, not because it's the Chinese but because it reflects how America has come to develop, how America saw itself at one time, and how it continues to see itself. The Chinese were the first to be excluded, but then all Asians were excluded eventually. So it sets the stage for people to understand that America is a gatekeeping country. We let some people in at some times, we don't let other people in at other times. It has much to do with the character of our national history. And that to me is the most important thing in understanding how we became who we are today. Some of it has to do with the fact that we excluded Chinese for 60 years. So
6: in California, they're trying to think of all kinds of ways to get rid of the Chinese without passing an exclusion law. But they're also lobbying in Congress to get an exclusion law passed.
3: Lawmakers in Congress, for their part, still led by radical Republicans, whose principles had been forged in the fight against slavery, continued to resist all efforts to get them to legislate against the Chinese on the basis of their race. But by 1875, the political dynamic in America had begun to shift, as Democrats in Washington began to understand that the Chinese issue could be indispensable to the post-Civil War rehabilitation of the Democratic Party. That year, with anti-Chinese sentiment at the state and local level on the rise, and a presidential election looming, California lawmakers redoubled their efforts to put pressure on Congress. Shifting the debate from the issue of race to the issue of contract labor, widely seen across the country as another form of slavery.
12: The issue of Chinese labor becomes a very easy one to galvanize the constituents of the Democratic Party, working men in particular, many of whom come from European immigrant backgrounds, would have been working class, would have been concerned about what appeared to be the flooding of Chinese workers into the nation. The Democratic Party is seen as a protector of working men's rights and a guarantor of their opportunities. And that's where we don't have just simply a local story, but one that then has large national resonance.
7: The Democrats suggest that the Chinese labor were actually equivalent to black slaves and really got the liberals in the New England, pushed them against the wall. Look at all the slaves that they have here in the West Coast. So on the one hand, you have this political pressure against the uh, Republicans because they were advocating for Chinese coolies. And on the other hand, the Chinese suddenly become a threat in some of the East Coast factories. They were using Chinese as uh, strike breakers. And so that made it possible for the fusion movement to get the support from the East Coast politicians.
3: For the first time, a pathway to Chinese exclusion, stymied at the national level for 20 years, now began to open. In
6: 1875, Congress passes the Page Act, which is an effort to speak to the demands of the Californians without circumventing the Burlingame Treaty. The Page Act prohibits the immigration of people coming under contracts to work, and prostitutes. Now, Chinese have been stereotyped already. All the men are coolies, all the women are prostitutes. So they think this is the way they're going to stop the Chinese immigration. And because contract workers and prostitutes are not defined as free immigrants, but as enslaved, they're not contradicting the terms of the Burlingame Treaty.
11: There developed this sexist, racist, misogynist attitude among Americans that Chinese women were naturally prone to become prostitutes. And therefore, the Chinese women who wanted to come to the U.S. had to prove that they were never prostitutes, that they weren't prostitutes then, nor would they ever become now, of course, one can't prove what will not happen or happen in the future. So many women chose not to even go through that humiliation. So we have that first act that's passed that is very racial and gender-specific.
13: The
6: Page Act is spectacularly successful at keeping women out. Not because all women coming were prostitutes, although some were but because the interrogation of the female arrivals was so horrific that once you hear about this, you don't want to try it. So female immigration plummets.
3: The impact of the Page Act was immediate and dramatic. In 1870, there were only 78 Chinese women in America for every 1,000 Chinese men. By the end of the decade, there were just 47
0: When the United States Congress passes the Page Act in 1875, and it bans most women, except merchants' wives, from entering the country, that's ethnic cleansing. Without women, there won't be family, progeny, lineage, children. And so the population will just die off. And it was intended to die off.
3: By 1876, a starkly reconsolidated white racial calculus was on the rise across America, from the streets of San Francisco to the halls of Congress. That year, Reconstruction would collapse entirely in the bitterly contested presidential election of 1876, when Republicans in Congress, choosing self-interest over justice and equal rights, agreed to withdraw federal troops from the South in a backroom deal that sent their party's nominee, Rutherford B. Hayes, to the White House, even though he had lost the popular vote to his Democratic rival, Samuel Tilton. During the campaign itself, platforms of
10: both major parties openly called for excluding Chinese. It came at a time when American politics was sort of balanced on a knife's edge between Republicans and Democrats If you look at the period between 1876 and 1896, you have five presidential elections in that period. They were all very close. The 1876 election in which the winner of the electoral college and the winner of the popular vote were different, the difference in the electoral college was one vote. Now, California had six electoral votes. Maybe they're decisive. Oregon had three. Nevada had three. Maybe they're decisive. So the pandering for political support from the Pacific Coast votes converts what would have been a local issue with local agitation into a national political issue.
3: Legitimized by recent federal legislation and the stunning outcome of the 1876 election, a rising tide of political reaction now washed back across the country to California. California.
0: The minute the Northern troops are withdrawn from the South and Reconstruction falls apart and the South is voting again in Congress and can take apart the civil rights victories of the Civil War, it becomes an invitation to race wars. So you have in California
6: a political movement for exclusion You have all this legislation going on. You have violence. You had gangs of kids that would throw rocks at the wagons of Chinese arriving from the docks on their way to Chinatown. They'd stand on the bridge and throw rocks at people or spit upon them. It was horrific. And then Chinese become the target of a so-called workingman's party and a workingman's movement. Dennis Kearney... A recently naturalized Irishman emerges as a leader of the Workingmen's Party in San Francisco.
13: He was very effective in pointing to Chinese immigrant men, male laborers, as being the source of the white workers' trouble because the Chinese immigrant was the tool. He was the slave of a fat cat industrialist boss who was exploiting workers, not paying a living wage and out to prevent white workers from gaining their fair share.
6: The city of San Francisco actually had to dispatch police and citizens' groups to hold back these mobs.
3: And now in Congress, the firewall of Republican
10: opposition itself began to crumble. So finally, the issue had been agitated for such a long time and the political impact of the issue had taken root in the Congress, that you got the 1879-15 Passenger Bill. That was a bill that said that there could not be more than 15 passengers of Chinese background on any ship entering the United States, and otherwise the ship would be turned back and the captain would be fined, and so on and so forth. In the first major debate in the Congress on the 1879-15 Passenger Bill, Senator James G. Blaine of Maine broke from the Northeastern Republicans who basically opposed Chinese exclusion to support exclusion. His theory was, if you had people who could not assimilate and become part of the body politic, and therefore should not become American citizens, then you also should not permit them to immigrate. Because if you allowed them to immigrate, you would always have a political underclass seething with resentment, unable to enjoy the full fruits of the American dream. That, he said, would create social problems for the country. So better not to let them come at all. Senator Blaine makes this statement. We have today to decide whether we shall have on the Pacific coast of the United States the kingdom of Christ or the kingdom of Confucius. So a choice had to be made. Restrict immigration and restrict citizenship rights or give the Pacific coast over to an alien culture and an unassimilable population unfit for citizenship. Now the 15 passenger bill ultimately got vetoed because President Rutherford Hayes on the advice of his secretary of state said, we have treaties with China, the Burlingame treaty specifically, that appears to allow for the free movement of peoples between China and the United States. And the 1879 legislation violates the treaty. People in the Congress knew it violated the treaty. At the same time, however, President Hayes then sent a delegation to China to renegotiate the Burlingame Treaty so that some kind of legislation could pass. And that negotiation gave the United States the right to restrict or to suspend immigration of Chinese labor. Chinese government really didn't want that treaty. America pushed it on them. China objected, but America assured them that the treaty would be administered in a fair way. So, in April of 1882, when they passed a 20-year exclusion act, which essentially barred an entire generation of Chinese labor from coming into the United States, that evoked a veto from President Chester Arthur. And then Congress came back very shortly thereafter with a 10-year bill. And at that point, President Arthur said, look, this is apparently the will of the Congress. 10 years is not as offensive as 20 years. And he didn't exercise the veto pen again. And May 6, 1882, the legislation becomes law. I dare say that people who voted for the Chinese exclusion laws, who came from Ohio, or Michigan or Minnesota probably never saw a Chinese person at the time they voted for those laws. And certainly the southern states were full of people who had never seen Chinese people either. Southern senators and congressmen voted for Chinese exclusion not because they had a Chinese issue within their own constituency, but because they felt if they tuned themselves to the political exclusionary interests on the Pacific coast, They would gain sympathy for what they wanted to do in their own region of the country to voters of african background which is disenfranchisement the fundamental point is you have your problem and we have our problem we'll support you you support us it was an argument against civil rights it was an argument against immigration but there was still lots of dissension in the congress against barring immigration And there was absolutely dissension against barring naturalization. Hannibal Hamlin of Maine, Abraham Lincoln's first vice president, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, was very opposed to it. And on the floor of the Senate, he denounced it. And he said, I'm opposed to this. It violates fundamental American principles. And he says, I leave my vote, the last legacy to my children that they may esteem it the brightest act of my life. This is a person with enormous moral authority. So, as the Congress acted, the voices of dissent were not muted. They were in fact active, eloquent, prominent, and ultimately insufficient. So, anything that the Congress did in these years, it was not by accident. He really did two things. One was an exclusion from immigration, and the other thing was an exclusion from citizenship. They were Chinese that were legally in the United States, coming from the time of the California gold rush, and then in much greater numbers, in connection with the construction of the Transcontinental Railway. So at the time, there were approximately 105,000 Chinese in America. Now, they were just two-tenths of 1% of the overall American population. So what happens to the people who are already here, people legally in the United States? And what that law said was these people cannot assimilate. They are too different in terms of their culture in terms of their appearance, in terms of their language, the clothes that they wear, and the food that they eat, and the gods that they worship, they cannot assimilate into the American population. And in that sense, they are different from European immigrants. So we're going to make, as a Congress, a judgment. We're going to say that because they are an unassimilable population, they cannot come to the United States, and those who are here cannot become American citizens.
13: Once exclusion was the law of the land, then Chinese immigrants turned to trying to figure out how to open up avenues within the laws. We know how active Chinese immigrants were in resisting, protesting, challenging these laws by every means possible, by writing to presidents, talking about the injustice in the newspapers and taking cases to court. You see people
12: immediately taking up the pen and and writing essays. You have Chinese intellectuals who are here in the United States during this period, like Wang Qingfu, for example, who writes and decries the Chinese Exclusion Act as, you know, anathema to American values and says, why are you particularly persecuting the Chinese?
7: Wang Qingfu on the East Coast organized the first Chinese-American civil rights organization to advocate for the Chinese. If there's a hero for me in Chinese-American history, he would be the first one on my list because he was totally fearless and very articulate, and he used American rhetoric and ideas to challenge the exclusion
2: law. He started a newspaper called The Chinese-American, the first time that term was ever used. And he thought the Chinese would become American and should vote, and this is a country that Chinese should settle.
5: What made the Chinese survive the most difficult conditions in this country is mainly their identification with American funding principles and also their faith in themselves. And they refused to be excluded.
9: No nation can afford to let go its high ideals. The founders of the American Republic asserted the principle that all men are created equal and made this fair land a refuge for the whole world. Its manifest destiny, therefore, is to be the teacher and leader of nations and liberty. Its supremacy should be maintained by good faith and righteous dealing and not by the display of selfishness and greed. But now, looking at the actions of this generation of Americans and their treatment of other races, who can get rid of the idea that that nation, which Abraham Lincoln said was conceived in liberty waxed great through oppression and was really dedicated to the proposition that all men are created to prey on one another. How far this republic has departed from its high ideals and reversed its traditionary policy may be seen in the laws passed against the Chinese. Yang Fo Li The Chinese must stay the North American Review.
5: This is the basic theme in Chinese-American history. The Chinese-Americans always challenge the anti-Chinese act and policies. They always appeal to the American judiciary system to protect their rights. Under the most difficult conditions, these people actually did not give up their faith. They fought. They fought for decades. It is a remarkable resilience.
2: Between the Exclusion Law, 1882 and 1905, there were more than 10,000 lawsuits the Chinese filed with the federal courts. And about 20 of these went to the Supreme Court. And the population of Chinese in America was about 110,000 at the time. This is 8, 9% of the people sued the federal government to change this.
6: Chinese used the courts in large part because they didn't have access to the ballot box. They didn't have the vote. But they knew they could use the courts. So this becomes their principal strategy for legal change. And from the 1880s through the end of the 19th century, there are a slew of constitutional cases. One type has to do with immigration, and the other type has to do with civil rights. They mostly lose the immigration cases. But in the question of civil rights, it's a little more mixed. The most famous civil rights case is Yikwo v. Hopkins in 1886. That's the laundry case where San Francisco had passed an ordinance that said nobody could have a wooden structure for a laundry, but if it had been built before that time, you could still operate it if you had a permit. And they just refused to give permits to Chinese, but they gave permits to whites.
2: Right away, 280 laundries apply, and 80 got their permit, 200 did not. The problem was all 80 were white, and all 200 were Chinese. Now, there was this guy named San Li. He had his laundry Yik Wah, And he stood up and said, I'm going to operate without this permit and be arrested to test this law. So he was arrested. The Chinese Sixth Company and the Laundry Association backed him. And they took it all the way to the Supreme Court saying that although a law is good on the surface, if it applied differently to different groups of people, is against the 14th Amendment, which provide equal protection under the law. It was never tested before.
10: The idea of a Chinese person being harassed, seeking the courts at remedy, at the same time that his people are being excluded from the country, The mixed ethnic metaphor, shows a lot of hootspah. And Yipo pulled it off. He pulled it off.
6: And this is a really important case because the court said, first, that the 14th Amendment provision for equal protection applies to all persons. That's the language of the amendment. Not just citizens, not just whites, all persons. So this is the key ruling that applies the 14th Amendment to aliens, to immigrants.
3: Soon, an even more fateful and fundamental legal battle was underway over the very definition of citizenship in America.
13: Juan was a native-born American born of Chinese immigrant parents in California in the 1870s. He had made several trips to China a few times before, but in 1894, he goes again and he comes back through San Francisco. And at that time, the San Francisco Collector of Customs is a well-known anti-Chinese opponent named John Wise. And he was eager for a test case to have the U.S. government consider is there such a thing as a native-born Chinese-American who can be a U.S. citizen if his parents are ineligible for citizenship under the nation's naturalization laws? So even though Wankamark had been allowed to re-enter the United States a few times before as a native citizen born in the United States, John Wise decides to deny him re-entry in 1894.
3: At stake was a bedrock constitutional issue. Under the 14th Amendment, could a Chinese-American born in the U.S. of immigrant parents be considered an American citizen or not? The U.S. attorney, arguing the government's case, insisted that even though Wong Kim Ark had been born in the United States, it was an accident of birth that did not override the fact that his parents were foreigners, ineligible for citizenship.
2: Wong Kim Ark fought it, all the way to the Supreme Court to establish something that we take for granted today. In
3: 1898, in a landmark ruling, the U.S. Supreme Court, citing the Citizenship Clause of the 14th Amendment, ruled that Wong Kim Ark, like anyone else born on American soil, was an American citizen.
13: And this is the case, this is the precedent that establishes a U.S. birthright citizenship for all. Wong Kim Ark
6: of 1898 is really important because it secures the citizenship status of Chinese born in the United States and all children born of immigrants in the United States. The court said that the language of the 14th Amendment is plain, and if you started to tinker with it, you would jeopardize the citizenship of all the children of Europeans in this country. So it was not necessarily out of any love for a Chinese people, but an understanding of what the implications would be more broadly.
3: With the passage of time, memories of the Chinese exclusion era, so painful for Chinese Americans themselves, faded from public view and were forgotten. In a nation that now preferred to think of itself, in principle at least as having always welcomed immigrants.
11: Those of us who are descendants of paper sons and discovering that you're a descendant of a paper son, that generation, my generation, who did not know that our grandfathers were paper sons because it was a secret that were kept in our families and never talked about, and then one day, perhaps before a funeral or before a birthday party or something, something is said that lets everyone know and you realize, oh, that's why we never talk about him or, oh, that's why that family in Chinatown is related to us but we can't figure out why or something. It's because of that legacy of exclusion and getting around exclusion. And once you realize that, then that sense of alienation, perhaps, or that sense of understanding that you are a legacy of exclusion hits you. And and you realize, oh, I'm part of that long history of immigration, exclusion, assimilation, acculturation, or marginalization, all of those processes that take place has its seeds in exclusion. It made me feel even more part of that flow of generations, of um, that Chinese experience in America. And for those generations who came after, who didn't have to face exclusion, I don't think they fully understand that. Because they never had to deal with it.
13: We only have to pick up a newspaper or listen to the news or read a blog about immigration today to understand why immigration is a complicated matter in the United States. The history of Chinese exclusion highlights that we have had a complicated relationship about immigration from the very beginning, and that it's that duality of welcoming immigrants, of understanding their need, our dependence on them, how they contribute to the United States, as well as our fear and anxiety of the different changing demographics, changing economic structure. That has made us who we are. That duality and our complicated relationship of immigration has shaped who we are as a nation. It shaped our economy, our society, our politics. And it continues to shape our ongoing understanding of what it means to be an American and how we continue to debate that to this day.
3: Gentlewoman from California.
13: Mr. Speaker, I rise in support of House Resolution 683. Today, for the first time in 130 years, the House of Representatives will vote on a bill that expresses regret for the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, one of the most discriminatory acts in American history. Over a century ago, the Chinese came here in search of a better life. During the California- When we look back, I think
5: we can learn that the Chinese have this uh, resilient faith in the founding principles. I think that's Chinese Americans' uh, contribution to this grand American experiment. The exclusion law can be seen as a fundamental flaw, a huge mistake in that historical process of great experiment. I think if you really look at this uh, system, you can also say that, you know, the exclusion law was democratic, it was legal, but it was wrong. So something wrong could be done in that process of building a democratic system there. On the other hand, even under the enormous difficult circumstances, with so many disillusions, so many disappointments, and so much suffering, generations of Chinese Americans. Never give up their faith and their hope. I I think that's very remarkable.
0: You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program.
1: Thank you, everyone, for watching the Chinese Exclusion Act. I hope you found something of value today. And I would like to welcome back David Leigh, who is going to provide his perspective and also entertain questions. So if you have any questions, please raise your hand and I will pass on the mic. Um, But please be sure to speak into the mic.
2: Okay, while you're thinking of your questions, I just want to acknowledge uh, Stephen Gong in the audience. He's the executive director for Center for Asian American Media, or CAM. And the co-producer of what you s- just saw, uh, this premiere May 2017, and uh, this was $2 million, somehow got the money raised. But the original is 2 hours 42 minutes, and then the PBS version is 2 hours, and this is 47 minutes. And it's available in Chinese, both traditional Chinese and simplified Chinese. So, I'll take questions from the audience. is the easiest way for me to talk into this. Wait until the microphone gets there.
12: Um, I have a question about the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Um, uh, politically, how did that happen? And then, actually, I went to a uh, tour in New York. There's a some- uh, like an immigration museum there. Ellis and, Island. Uh, no, no, not the. They have, uh, you know, it's a tenement museum. Okay. Tenement museum. So they talked about the Chinese Exclusion Act there, and they mentioned, I think. Um, uh, uh, a politician who was uh, white, who was against it from the beginning, and he has such a long congressional career that he actually um, took part in the ex- uh, repealing. repeal. Yeah.
2: Okay. In the original document, it does cover the repeal in 1943. Remember, the uh, America went to war with uh, Germany, Japan, Italy the axis and China was an ally. So the Japanese was using the exclusion act in their propaganda. They want to have all the Asian countries get together and says why would you support a country that won't let you in? So Congress quickly in his wisdom repealed the exclusion act after 61 years and but they put a quota on the chinese uh the quota was 105 chinese a year can come i was my family of six in 1956 took up six of those 105 slots <laughs> it was like winning the lottery six times over and that didn't change until 1965 when the, after the Civil Rights Act, he says, well, the these quotas we have for these different countries doesn't add up. So then the Chinese, it became more equal between all the countries. But the most important thing on the repeal of the Exclusion Act was Chinese that were here can become naturalized citizens. And that made a big difference. And after the war, the War Bride Act and then the the GI Chinese joined the military three times more than Americans about 20,000 Chinese joined 20% as opposed to about 7% for the general public and after the war they were able to bring go back to China get married and start families that was the big change for the Chinese community That I, hopefully, okay. Uh, McCarran, I don't know his history. I think he's the one that helped write to repeal that, uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Questions? Uh, How are people able to get copies or uh, show the full film? The uh, PBS, you can go to PBS, the two hours for the two hours 42. No. Unfortunately, the
8: two-hour version. Unfortunately, the two-hour version. You would have to have DVR'd it. The PBS video at the pbs.org .dot uh, org site is selling the full uh, festival cut, as we call it, two hours and forty-two minutes. And it does, as David says, it is subtitled both Chinese and simplified. But that's where you can get it, and it's on sale now. I think it's only about fifteen dollars, maybe eighteen dollars. And and I highly recommend it.
2: Thank you, Stephen. Other questions?
6: Hi. Um, I wanted to ask about other ways that – were there other ways apart from paper suns to, that the Chinese were using to get sort of access to the country? Wasn't there a merchant that you could get? M- you had, yes.
2: there's uh, sure. Merchants were able to come because the U.S. wanted to continue to trade with China. Uh, students and scholars can come. Uh, diplomats and you can come as a tourist but you have to post a bond uh, I went to Nara finally and got my grandfather's paper and he posted 10,000 to come as a tourist in 1921 but because you can come as a merchant Many of the businesses, uh, Chinese businesses, ended up with a lot of partners. I think the minimum requirement to qualify you as a merchant is $500. So I've been to NARA, the National Archive, to look up these documents of partnerships. I've not seen an investor that invested less than $500. They were all 500 and up. <laughs> So that was the way, that was another way to be a merchant to qualify to come. Also, later on, if you were a performer, uh, opera performer, they were able to come because thanks to P.T. Barnum, he needed uh, acrobats and so on. So the Chinese hired his lawyer to allow actors to come, and that became a big part of San Francisco the, uh, the Chinese community, to have these entertainment. They brought the news. They were the mass media. And it changed the culture of the Chinese here
1: in America. Hi, David. Thank Hi. you. Um, I, As an educator, this is obviously a very valuable piece of Chinese-American identity or history. I'm wondering, um, is it possible to make this film more easily accessible for schools, um, and as
12: part of the curriculum
2: afterwards you can talk to Stephen at camp there's a whole curriculum done with the oakland school district uh and it's available it's free so and also stanford their spice program is working on this right now to make it available to different grade level uh the Chinese still talk about our contribution in building a railroad, and that's very easy. You said, well, the Chinese built a railroad. We provided the labor, and kids understand that right away. But these equal protection under a law, right to a public education, birthright citizenship, including political asylum, that was the Chinese case as well, uh, they're much harder. And that's why the original document, Tree was two hours 40 minutes and they wanted even longer <laughs> so yes it's complicated we're trying to figure out how to do it for younger people and students so I think we're just about to long. we have it <laughs> and but Stanford's still working on theirs so it's not available yet. Hi David,
4: thank you so much. Um, I really enjoyed this piece, and I definitely learned a lot about um, my own family's story and and the roots that that we have here. Um, one thing that I found really really fascinating um, in watching this is just um, you know the the use of the judiciary system, you know, as this tool of protest and resilience. Um, and so there have definitely been uh, lots of other you know. Uh, I guess, disenfranchised groups who have tried to use the judiciary uh, system. Um, Why do you think that the Chinese Americans or the Chinese in America at this particular time were able to be so, in my mind at least, uniquely successful um, as
2: a tool of, of resilience? The Chinese here were so organized, and they were organized in China even before they came. So organized, they were able to tax themselves to fight this. And, uh, they hired the best lawyers money could buy. And that was one of the keys. Uh, in front of San Francisco City Hall, we have two statues. Anyone know the two statues we have in front of City Hall? There's Lincoln on Polk Street. Why do we, why don't we name that Lincoln Street? And have, but anyways, on, McGallister McAllister Street, there's a taller statue, taller than Lincoln, more prominent. He's standing there, dressed very nicely, pointing to a book that he's holding that reads L-E-X, Law. Right? He's reading a law book. The street is named after him. His name is Hall McAllister. Anyone knows Hall McAllister? We named the street after him. He's the founder of the California Bar Association, best lawyer money could buy in the 1880s. The Chinese hired him for the Yik-Wa case that defined equal protection under law. His office was on Kearney and Clay Street, right in the heart of Chinatown, the corner of Portsmouth Square. Why? 10,000 lawsuits <laughs> the Chinese file. So there were basically three main firms the Chinese used. He was one of them. And that was the key. Uh to the Chinese they had family association you're born into them. I'm a Lee, so I'm the Lee family association. You have the Wong family association, Chan family association. You're from the same clan. So you tend to help each other. Then you come from a district, a county, equivalent to San Francisco County, Alameda County. But in China, this area, every county had a different dialect. So it's natural that you stay with the people that spoke your language. So as soon as you got off the boat, your district association will, will be there at the pier and shouting out in that dialect, anyone from this area, they will pick them up. Give them housing, take them back to their boarding house, their district boarding house, and they register there. And then you have all these district associations sent representative to the Chinese Six Company representing six of the counties. And they basically had the right to tax people, especially when they exit. They had an exclusive right with the shipping line. Not the shipping line, the passenger line. Before you can buy a ticket, you have to get an exit visa from your district association. And they, in the 1900s was $9. By the 20th century, it was $11. $1 went to hiring a lawyer. $1 went to the hospital. $4 went to charity groups and so on and so forth. So it was, you know, the, and there were other fees and other taxes. And then today I just found a document where one person was to be deported. And that district association sent out an appeal. And a lot of people came in and just donated to help the person with legal fees. So the six company and the district association did a lot of these kind of work. And that's why I think all these Big time lawyers for those days were hired to achieve uh, all these lawsuits.
6: Before the movie started, you mentioned paper sons, and um, I still don't quite understand oh. the concept of paper sons.
2: Okay, remember we had an earthquake and fire in 1906; city hall burned down, as well as the uh, Department of Records. All the records were destroyed. So all of a sudden, out of the, this disaster, for the Chinese, they saw it as an opportunity. If you're born in America, you're a citizen, right? Because Wang Kim Art, 1898. So all these Chinese knew City Hall didn't have anything. So they show up, says... I, I was born here on what, what street, such an address. And by the way, I have three sons in China <laughs> that now I want to bring over. Uh, fraudulent, yes, but it was an opportunity and it was, you know, to fight this exclusion that the Chinese always felt it was unfair. One of the reasons why the, why America, and you saw on the documentary, felt the Chinese can never be Americans because Chinese don't understand democracy, liberty, because the Chinese have had lived under a monarchy for 3,000 years. Just as this country felt Catholics should not be president because they will always Report to the Pope, be loyal to the Pope until Kennedy, right? So that was what America, one of the reasons that the Chinese will never understand this. And throughout the film, uh, they talk about how the Chinese really felt democracy was for them, this liberty, how good this country was. And they felt they had to change China. That China, in order for China to be a modern country, has to adopt democracy, become a republic. So there was a secret society here uh, called the Qigong Tong. They have a bad reputation today, just the last 10 years. But prior to that, very good reputation. They're a secret society because you're going to overthrow a government, the Qing government in China, Manchu foreign dynasty the last dynasty in china so you had to keep a secret they had 373 branches in the americas and about half the chinese americans were members and their goal was to turn china into a democratic republic and they put their money on sun yat sen and in 1911 when he was in this country raising money and giving speeches his people seceded. They overthrew the Manchu, and China in 1911, October 10th, became the third democratic republic in the world. Because they're the third, America was the first to recognize China in 1911. The, other, the only other country was France. America first, France, and then China was the third. It didn't turn out that well for China because they went through civil war and all that. But it was a democratic republic. The 100,000 Chinese we had in this country really believe in this system, supported it, sent back money. I see letters from Mexico, the branch in Mexico, saying we're starving here, but we're going to send a nickel this month. And they turned this country of 400 million into a democratic republic. So how can you say this group of people did not love, uh, did not have this concept of democracy being a republic, the uh, three-branch system, and they really want to replicate this in China? Those are some of the... Thing that these incredible people uh, incredible people, did do. So one more question.
6: Thank you, David. Actually, I was one of those that saw the long version, and I decided to see the shortened version. <laughs> and yes. I just wanted to ask if you can mention something about the exhibit uh, that oh, yes. is available for those that live here in the Bay Area, San Francisco, that may be interested in the exhibit. Yes.
13: David Convention.
2: This started, uh, this whole concept started off with an exhibition in New York, the New York Historical Society, the oldest museum in America, 1804. And they decided to do an exhibition on Chinese in America. And they picked this topic. And I was really blown away. I said, this is a West Coast thing, and why would East Coast do this? But they were able to raise the money. To put on that exhibition, I think it cost them more than two million to put on that exhibition, and it ran for a while. Then went to Portland, and after Portland, uh, it came here to San Francisco, where it still reside permanently. They gave it to San Francisco, and Rick Burns, uh, who did this, he was on the board of the New York Historical Society. He says, "I'm a historian. Why have I not?" ever heard about this Exclusion Act and what the Chinese did. He says, this isn't a immigrant story. This is the immigrant story. So he decided to make this documentary so more people will know about it. But if you have time, go to the uh, Chinese Historical Society of America on Clay Street uh, below Powell Street, above Stockton Street. You have to walk up the hill. Is a Julia Morgan building, lovely building. Uh, it was a former YWCA. That's why Julia Morgan, she built most of the YWCA in those days. And uh, just go and see the exhibit. It's quite nice to continue this conversation. Well, thank you very much. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much, David Lay, and the Center for Asian American Media, and also Lillian Nagagawa, another member of the Asian Pacific Affairs Forum. Thank you for helping coordinate and organize. And we also thank our audiences here, as well as those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned.